It's May 4th, 2007, and this is The Candid Frame. Well, welcome again to another episode of The Candid Frame. Today's guest is a photographer I met while I was down uh, in Tucson, Arizona last month. I'd gone down to uh, visit a friend of mine, um, and uh, while we were down there, I had the opportunity to meet another photographer, Carl W. Hoffman, who's who's today's guest. And uh, he owns a, a small gallery in, uh, in, uh, in an area just south of Tucson, and while talking to him, he started telling me about a documentary project he's been working on for the last two years. And he lives in a small border town, just about seven miles from the United States-Mexican border. And he has been da- documenting the uh, the impact of immigration and a variety of other things on this small town. And uh, I was really fascinated by by his story and his project, and he, you know offered to actually take us of a tour of, of the border and uh, to tell us more about the, the project to be working on. So I, even though I was only there for a couple of days, I didn't want to miss out on this, this opportunity, so I took him up on his offer. And while we were out there driving around, uh, I interviewed him for the show. And uh, I think what was really kind of interesting, because there's been a lot of, uh, lot of you know, uh, coverage uh, about the whole immigration issue all along the border. Uh, but uh, I never really heard much from someone who actually lived on the border, and which Carl does. And his work and, and the documentary that he's come up with, which is basically a, a compilation of, of the stills that he's created and uh, his, his narration, which is available on a DVD for which I'll provide a link on the site, provides a sort of a unique insight because I think a lot of the people who go and uh, photograph and, and create essays or stories on them are really people who do not live within the, the communities. They're, they're, for all intents and purposes, outsiders who come down there, photograph, interview, tell stories, but they often go back to wherever where they live. And um, I thought Carl's perspective is that this is his community. These are the people that he lives and, and works with. And uh, I thought that he brought a real, um, really interesting take to to the story of what's happening on the border. And regardless of what side of the uh, the issue you're, you're on, I think uh, he has a very interesting story to tell. And, and some of his images are, are quite striking. And uh, that's one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to uh, interview him for the show. And I think you'll find it very interesting because he actually, I, I was actually interviewing him as he was driving us around uh, uh, along the border, showing us the various trails that the immigrants used to cross uh, into the United States as well as where some drug trafficking uh, happens and explaining the whole background in, in terms of that and, you know, the military presence now with the National Guard and, and uh, the Border Patrol being there and... Uh, well, it's just an interesting story, which you're going to hear in a minute. So thank you for joining me again, and here's our interview with Carl W. Hoffman. All right. Um, 
So where are we headed off to right now? Right now we're going to whip around, show you the barracks, and we're going to head to Sasabee. It's a small border crossing, one of the smaller ones in the area. And just before the little town of Sasabee, we're going to take a left, head along the Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuge, and then we're going to cruise on into the Coronado National Forest. We're going to work along the border and come back up to some pretty nasty, gnarly country. What you're going to see is you're going to see the countryside that the illegal immigrants have to go across and what they have to deal with. And how long have you been working on this, this documentary project? Two and a half years. And uh, how, how did you get started on it? Well, I came down here to look over the area. It was great for photography. And all of a sudden we found ourselves living on the border. And the life down here was really different. When you start to see the people, the mix of people that live down here on the border, it's really intriguing. You have from the 1970s a large group of hippies kind of settled into California Gulch. A lot of them moved on, but a lot of them were absorbed into the community. You have generations of Hispanic American families from both sides of the border. You have the uh, vaqueros and the cowboys. You've got the drug runners, and you've got the uh, immigrants that work here, live there, and you've got the elderly that all have moved down here for the low-cost uh, medical attention, doctors, dentists, prescription drugs, all over the border in Mexico. So people are used to just floating back and forth across this. Now, the border's changed so many times over the years. It's been kind of stable the last hundred years, but prior to that, this border has really been flexible. Uh, it was just real interesting. All these people blend, and when you look at it, there's no law down here. There's no law at all. Everybody sort of polices themselves. They take care of business. Uh, it's a real interesting place. So how do you how do you negotiate that as a as as a photographer, particularly when you're first starting out and you come out and you start, you know, pulling out a camera? What's you don't just come down here to this area and pull out a camera. You've got to live here. You've got to work with the people side by side. You've got to go down and dance at the bar. You've got to get in with the, the functions and meet each of them on a one-to-one on a -one basis. And as they accept you, and as you sort of blend into the community, then you can start to take some good pictures and people will let down their guard. They're very private people down here but they're so willing to give you their shirt off their back if it's the only shirt. They help each other. There was one lady in town that needed an operation in Mexico, and it's a very poor town, and they got together and worked so hard to raise the $6,000 to send this woman down to Mexico. There was no welfare or anybody to help her, so the people did it. But they liked their anonymity. They liked to be private. Uh, they all live on what's called, there's a lot of people, excuse me, live in what's called the 40s. It was a huge ranch that was subdivided into 40-acre parcels in the early 70s and sold off really cheap. So you know, a lot of hooligans out there. It's interesting to see people come into town, old fellas, white beards, tie-dye t-shirt, and a big pistol. <laughs> I mean, everybody carries guns. and It's quieted down a lot. They haven't had a running gun battle in Main Street, uh, probably in over a year. <laughs> So. so the town that you live in, how far is that from the border? As the crow flies, we're seven miles. Okay. 
Okay, and the name of the town? Any other what? No, the name of the town. The we, name of the town is Aravaca. Aravaca, so seven miles. Okay. And what's, what's interesting is that, you know, border regions, they're not just, they're not just places. They're a thin line between the lives of human beings. They are just a different place. They've always been sort of the, uh, the frontiers of countries, you know, where, where laws are made deep within. And they're pretty much left alone until the wind blows some whims of politics their way. And suddenly things are going to change. And this is a, a documentary project. Have you always been a documentary photographer, or did has this project been one of the first that you? You've this done? is one of the first. It was just uh, I saw a need and a place, and it just was really exciting to see to be able to document probably one of the last American frontiers as it vanishes before us. The walls are going up. I mean, I've seen in two years the signs come down, the crosses come down, the walls go up. Uh, the, the tightening of security. But what's really interesting, from my perspective, is the whole border issue. Sometimes in life, if you can't find a solution, there just not may not be a problem. I think the majority of the Mexicans want to come over here, work, and go home take their dollar back home or, or go somewhere. They have you know, inexpensive medical, dental, prescription drugs. They can take their money they make here, which they're paid very little, go home and live very well with their families on their land out in the country, which, you know, right now we have this, uh, this sort of in vogue thing to go live in the country and build your little estates and have your little ranchettes. Well, they already live in the country. Uh, they want to come up here and, and have their kids, you know, spoiled by the TV, you know, and the, and the, the rap music and the iPods and the commercialism. Uh, they're down-to-earth people. There's a lot of studies on, on, on the migrants coming in and how they change. What happens to them when they start getting Americanized? The ones that do come here, they don't want to change America into Spain. They want to fit in. But this is happening all over the world, so I... I seen this as sort of the first chapter in uh, my project on world borders. Well, tell me about your beginning as a photographer. You're, you're a transplant from the, from the East Coast. Uh, tell me a bit about you know uh, how you first developed an interest in photography and what kind of work you did uh, before arriving here. Okay. I grew up on Cape Cod. Cape Cod in the 50s was a very rural place. I could shoot my 22 in the backyard, ride my neighbor's horse along the beach. So did a lot of hunting. My grandfather settled there. He was uh, first mate of one of the old schooners in square, who sailed the square riggers. Uh, so came from an old Cape Cod family. And then I started skiing up in New Hampshire. It's a long story, but I'll just, we got time. I broke my neck in two places riding a horse, and that ended the ski career. And I'd never really gone in the art room in high school. It wasn't an option, so I had not much interest in art. But my mom was always dragging us kids to art galleries all around the East Coast whenever there was something going on. So I was exposed to it. And I met this silversmith 
and I couldn't do any work at all. My neck was broken. I was in braces, and I need, but I needed a job. I just graduated high school, so he kind of took me under my under his wing and said, "Hey, I'll give you a job making jewelry." I loved it. I thought, "Wow, this is really neat." I didn't even know I was created creative till I had some sort of technical ability to translate my ideas, my feelings. So. I started working with him until I had learned all he had to teach and then headed for New York City. Where do you go when you want to learn fine jewelry? You go to the jewelry industry. Uh, that was 47th Street. So I ended up in New York at the height of the disco era. That was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> Left the hippie days up there on the Cape and headed down, you know. I miss going to Woodstock because I had to work that weekend. <laughs> one of my dad had a delivery business. One of his drivers uh, called in sick. And, uh, you know, I worked for my dad. Who else is going to go? I knew they're out. The rest of my buddies went to Woodstock. That's probably why I'm alive today. <laughs> so off to New York. Uh, did a three-year apprenticeship in New York. And I liked the city. It was a lot of fun. The New York City was great. I met some great, great artists, photographers, jewelers, painters, sculptors. We had a good, good group. And then... One day, I wanted to ski again. So I went. To, I was at the auto show, and I took called in sick for work. Went down to Manhattan American Motors, bought a brand new CJ7, packed up my stuff, put in my res resignation, and moved to Vail, Colorado, to be a ski bum for a while. <laughs> and I got a job for a jewelry store, of course. Made jewelry, and I just sort of kept designing jewelry. Um, Lots of adventures in between. I end up settling in Colorado. Uh, and you picked up a, a camera when? Well, after 35 years of designing fine jewelry, looking at form and balance and color and sparkle and light, I picked up a camera about, about six years ago. We had a gallery, and it was just the beginning of the, so the computer age where they were getting rolling. There's some illegals in the back of that car right there. Um, so we had to take pictures and send them to customers so we got a little digital camera oh, that was it I fell in love with it I was always kind of interested in photography my dad was real good with photography and I had some, some buddies that became very famous in photography but uh, suddenly I looked through the lens and I just had this natural ability to, to put things into perspective from all the years of looking down and, and arranging things and I could find the balance flow and the composition and I wanted to really do something more meaningful. I had got to a point in my life where I wanted to put more meaning into my artwork and I couldn't express myself in jewelry. I mean, jewelry over the years sort of sold out to the fashion industry never became an art form or photography became an art form and I found I could do more with it. I really hadn't, didn't know much about computers either, so I went to the college and took a beginning course in operating a computer. I didn't know what a mouse was, so one thing led to another, and I just loved it. So I went to the, I was in several galleries around the country, and I went to different galleries that carried my jewelry, my fine jewelry and sculpture. I said, I'm changing. Some said fine. Some said, well, we really don't do photography, but have enjoy. So I dropped some galleries, picked some up, and it's been doing really well, the fine art photography. 
And your first subjects before this uh, documentary project was primarily what? People. Okay. People. And then I started doing horses. Because horses and people are so close. Their personalities, their feelings, their bonds. Uh, they're just really neat. They like horses like other horses, like people like to be around other people. I mean, with some exceptions. <laughs> some people should be out by themselves. <laughs> we see a horse sitting out there all by itself. Don't go ride it. <laughs> but, you know, I've always loved horses, and I always loved their personalities. And they're so different and so caring, and they just, they're cool. They're just neat. So understanding their personalities just was, made it easier to translate through photography what they were feeling. So a lot of my horse pictures were actually taken from horseback. Oh, okay. The, 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 uh, with the help of vibration reduction. I was such about to say. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can train a horse to shoot a gun off the back, you can just squeeze and train a horse to, you know, sit still for the camera. And they will. Clay has been very patient with this documentary, taking all my equipment and gear out in here into the Sonoran Desert, you know, okay. and long, long trips into there. He's very patient. No, exactly. So you go out there on horseback with you with your camera gear. Yep. Okay. All right. And I go out and I, f I follow the trails of the immigrants. Uh, and even some of those trails are too tough for horseback. Wow. And that's the last thing you can get through. I mean, that's the last way to get along some of these trails other than foot. You can't get a four-wheeler. You can't get anything through there. And I've come across some of those trails that drop down and come straight up that... Clay and I just look at it. <laughs> we have to go around. We can't do this. I mean, these little people crawl through some of the harshest, and everything out there will either stick you, scratch you, bite you, poke you, sting you. It gets you. Yeah. <laughs> it's rough ground. You got mesquite thorns, you know, an inch and a half, two inches long. And they're sharp. You got cactus and snakes and you know, just up and And that terrain has a temperature. Uh, variation throughout the year from anywhere from below zero to 120 degrees. Wow. So when you, you go out there, how long do you spend out there? I come back by night. There's no sense, there's no sense of being out on the Sonoran Desert along those paths at night. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's real dangerous. I don't have the light to shoot with. Uh, so I head out and I'm usually back by dark. Sometimes it's a little later, but you know yeah. I'm heading home. So, in in terms of uh, you know just danger that's out there, I think that's one of the first things that people think about uh, at the idea of being out here. Uh, you know, period. Much less out here with the camera. So, what are some of the things that you have to contend with, and and uh, what some of the precautions you have to take? I carry a camera around my neck and a 45 on my side. Yeah, I'm good with both. It's just the nature of the beast. You have to protect yourself. You have to be out there. You have to be very aware of your surroundings and what's going on. Uh, I have a little bit of advantage being on horseback because I'm up above. But I watch the terrain. I watch the footprints. I listen. Uh, at one point, I was coming down a draw. The draw is like a gulch where the water runs down. It's all sandy most of the time of year. And I just saw the glenochrome disappear behind some bushes. Well. We know Border Patrol doesn't have chrome wheels. They don't drive shiny black metallic pinstriped trucks. So I just hold up on my reins and, and wait. And still something's going on up there and it's none of my business. 
these are not, you know, here to take pictures of, well, I am, but it's too nice of a day for a shootout. So, I just wait. The next thing you know, this dark colored hand comes out, which I would probably say was Hispanic, with a gold bracelet, and waves me on. <laughs> and I just, I go my way, they go theirs. I wait till they do whatever they're doing. Because I had no way out. The draw was kind of steep, and I, yeah. there really wasn't a way to just turn around, and once you're in it, just... It's the respect of this area. You know, night and daytime are worlds apart, but they have a certain respect for each other. Same with when you're out here. So... How about the issues with the Border, border Patrol itself? I don't have any problems with Border Patrol. Border Patrol is just doing their job. Give them respect that they do for the job they do. And, you know, right or wrong, same with our troops. <laughs> you know, whether you believe or, or support the politics that drives them, you know, that's why we have a democracy. That's why we vote. But the people on the line, they're real good. They're very respectful. And if you respect them, they'll respect you. Uh, I come across a couple areas. Uh, it's a free country. And the Border Patrol said, would you mind not going down there today? There's something going on. I said, hey, peace. <laughs> There's 1,900 miles of border. I'll take some pictures over there. <laughs> Is that cool? <laughs> there are a lot of people who have, you know, uh, gone and documented the whole migration thing. I think it's kind of interesting that you're a resident of a, of a community that's impacted by it. Um, I'm sure you've had the opportunity to see other work, but what do you think your work is bringing to, to the whole sort of dialogue photographically that some of the other work isn't? If you go along the border, it was one photographer, I'm not putting him down. I'm just pointing out that his claim to fame was that he traveled the entire 1,900 miles. You're getting quantity, not quality. How can you feel what's going on? How can you go down to human resources and listen to the old guy that volunteers to cook for the needy people five days a week and sit down there? I just had a big breakfast. He goes, you got to eat with us. <laughs> So I ate again, and eat with them, and listen to them, and then you understand their tears, their laughter, their feelings, and what's really going on. What is happening with the generations of people that have lived here, in intermingled? They're they're scared. Their whole life is changing. You have urban sprawl. You have borders and walls. You have blackhawks in your backyard. <laughs> you know, I don't mean from the wildlife refuge. Uh, you have to feel that. You have to be invited into their homes. You have to really, it's, it's hard. Yeah. If you don't live in a place, I think anybody will tell you that. We just don't in our society, we don't have the luxury of going and photographing and spending several years in a place to learn it. But I think the best documentaries are the people that go and live and go and really, once you do that, I think it was a learning experience for me. I'll be better at world borders if I go to a country. Obviously, I can't go to every border and live there for two years. Because, you know, I'll be 100 years old by the time I get through with a few. But once you get the feeling of the people by living there in a real border area, it's like learning one language. It's easier to learn two. It's easier to learn three. It's easier to learn four. And I think that will help. Yeah. But it's still hard. It's hard for any photographer or any artist to just go to an area and feel the heartbeat, you know, in, on a vacation or on a quick tour. What do you think you discovered by the 
by your choice to, to use a camera to document the entire experience. What if, what have you learned as a result of being a photographer that you don't think you otherwise would have learned? You know, I couldn't write because I'm a terrible speller. <laughs> but I think in the photography, you can feel what they're feeling. You can look into their eyes and capture that that mood. You can see the joy, uh, and you have to work at it. I mean, if you get a good picture out of a thousand, you're lucky. If you get that special picture, you, but being there, talking to them, knowing some of these people every day, going to their functions, going to the, the festivals in town, uh, you know, you know. You live in a community that's only about you know, 200 people, mm -hmm. which is sort of could be considered a real microcosm of what's happening in terms of the country regarding the, the, the border issue. Um, what are some of the stories that, that you've discovered as a, as a part of this documentary project that, uh, that you think provides particular insight into, you know, what's going on, particularly now since it's a hot topic of discussion and debate? I think their ultimate acceptance of each other and who they are is, is real rewarding. It's real unique. You have such a blend of border people and they're so accepting of other people, other cultures. They open their hearts. It doesn't matter if you come down in a cowboy hat and your shiny boots or your tie-dye shirt or the bikers come rolling into town. Everybody's, you know, hi, how you doing? Waves to each other, you know. It's, you know, a pickup full of cowboys will stop and help a biker with a flat tire. <laughs> they're very accepting of each other's, each other's views. And they give people a wider berth, I think. And they're ready to help. Well, tell me about more of the technical issues in terms of um, photographing it. I see you got here a, a D200 and a, it's like an 18 to 135 or a I use the I use the 18 to 200 with the vibration reduction. Uh, most of my work is outdoors. And, you know, I started out with uh, several different little Sony point and shoots. One of the best cameras I ever had, and I still have it in my bag now, is the Nikon 8800. It was an 8.2 megapixel camera, all integrated, vibration reduction, with their little flagship EVF. Great camera. Um, TIFF, RAW, great stuff, fit in your pocket. That's usually the one I have in my saddlebags. I'm just going quick riding. If I want to go out to get something, I can do macro with it. But it's slow, very slow. I had to get faster because I was missing pictures, missing expressions, and you know, somebody will mix, you're waiting for that little hourglass to go, you know, it's like, oh, this, and then you missed five more shots, one could be the best one. Uh, so I have that as a backup camera, and I use the D200 because it's fast. The 18200 is very flexible, it's not a real big lens, so that's pretty much what I do. Uh, I have a sh smaller lens for, for subtlety, I really like a little fixed power. Uh, 20 millimeter. It's a great little lens. Uh, so you put your camera under your shirt. Great for indoors. Great for in crowds, people pictures. But I've got the 18 to 200, and then the uh, I have a great big huge lens there. That's a lot of fun. If I want to get uh, way out there, but some of that 18 to 200, I can get out there if I need an observation point or something. Get real steady. I can still make the shot. Yeah. But. I have one I've been using the silkas and I really like it. So. And I saw just uh, from the, the DVD that you have, 
that uh, you're converting them all the, the black and white, is that right? Yes. So why, why the choice to do this in black and white as opposed to, to color? My feeling is I've taken a lot of pictures, a lot of pictures, and taken the color out, and they just don't stand up by themselves. I don't want the color to get in the way of the mood and the way of the feelings. I want to be able to show what I want to show. And I guess it's a personal thing. I feel that the black and white, I really like it. <laughs> it's a bottom line. <laughs> and I feel more creative with it. Uh, many pictures, I mean, I'm not doing sunsets. I'm not doing beautiful pictures that, you know, are composed with color that you just go, wow, I'm not doing pieces that anybody's going to hang on their wall. Yeah. But when you get done with the documentary and you have this kind of feeling that something just happened, I think I've done my job. Tell me about the, how, the whole uh, process of deciding to put together a DVD of these images and how you decided on the content and why did you decide to um, sort of share the, the images and your, your project through a DVD rather than, you know... Uh, a book? Yeah, a book. Couldn't afford a book. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely self-funded, so, you know, the book was, I want to do a book. I want to do a book so bad, but books take a lot of research, they take a lot of money, and you got to have people to buy them. A DVD I can produce, and I can give them away. I can give them out to everybody, you know, and you can see the project. I want people to see the project. So, every time I sell a DVD, I'm, I can make 25 more. <laughs> and give them away so the project can get out it's also I can take a DVD and I can send it to publishers I can send it out to museums I can send it to universities to libraries to schools and people can see what I'm doing yeah. it's it's not a, a prize it's like aha I found a niche and this is what's gonna make me rich no this is what's gonna make me happy what's been the, the response to the work that Especially in the, in the community that you, that you live in, I had the opportunity to take a look at it. Really good reviews. I've had great reviews from, well, I got a great review from Yale University Press in London. I have a very good review from the Notre Dame University. Um, they would like to collaborate on doing an exposition. And then a little lady in town in a tie-dye dress came up and gave me a big hug and told me how wonderful and how unbiased my project was. That was important. Yeah. So I passed them out to the people in the community. They really like it because it's just it shows what's going on. So where are we right now? I mean, right now we're coming up on the National Guard uh, headquarters. You'll see all kinds of Humvees and guys go in. This is sort of their uh, where they work out of. This is their big, big deal. These right here are portable observation towers. They put them out in the desert. Just look across the desert and see nothing. And all of a sudden, pop, up they come. They look around, they drop down. Pretty wild critters. With the influx of uh, the National Guard as of late, um, what changes have you seen? You know, the National Guard down here, 
they're all doing a job. And so they're all doing the job that they're required to do. So, I mean, we can't fault them. They're great guys. You know, they all come into the supermarket. There's a one picture in there where you've got, you know, a black National Guardsman in a little white community with an AR-15 in his shoulder joking with the kids out in front of the market. This is an all-accepting place. This place around here, people just... Oh yeah, okay. Well, they don't even they don't even notice. You know, they care. That, oh, guy's got his rifle on his shoulder. They have to have it everywhere they go. Nobody cares whether it's loaded, unloaded, or the guy's eating a candy bar. Or you know, it's just <laughs> these people are wonderful. We just passed through uh, what looks like the remains of a town. Is yep. Right there is the actual border crossing. Uh, this isn't the remains of the town. This is the whole town. Oh, that's it. Okay. <laughs> that was Sassafee. <laughs> But I'm going to come down here and turn around. <laughs> I wanted to show you this. Uh... Okay, now this border station closes at 8 o'clock. So a lot of the area gets real quiet. So is this an active town? Because I see a lot oh, of yeah. chain link fence around some of the <laughs> that's just That's the way people live. Uh, here on the border, everybody has what security they can afford. Even when their laundry's hanging out, you have razor wire around the, the houses. You'll see this picture in this particular angle. And without the color, you can see the glint of the razor wire. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so we're like 100 yards from the border. Right. Is that mm -hmm. And this is, this is a border town. Okay. An old border town. There you go, there's a little Sassapi store. Still, it's not too far off the road. So, how large would you say this community is right here? <laughs> <laughs> including, the now, including the government people? Or <laughs> it's not too big. I'd say, you know, if you got 50 people, maybe 100. Yeah. But that's it, you know. And you were talking about um, you know, getting to know people, like in your in your town, you know, you live there. How about when you come out to locations like this? How do you kind of... Um... You know, when I'm out here, I'm more concerned with uh, being on tour. Sort of coming out and getting the, the landscape. In, I'm not... I have a town to photograph, so I don't okay. need to, you know. And Aravaca is sort of this typical little town. It's 50 miles south of the of a big city. Urban sprawls heading this way. Uh, a lot of uh, Hispanic labor coming over, backhoe operators, construction coming over. And what's sad is that you know they're building these places. They're heading towards the border, and the places they're building, there's an observation tower. Uh, they're building these places which will eventually close the border even tighter. Yeah. Uh, I've gone into Mexico and photographed the border from the other side. Uh, so they actually have a camera up there on that. Camera and people. Yep. Oh, this is all part of a national wildlife refuge. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Well, this was a ranch. And it was donated to the to become a, a huge ranch. This was all the way up. Uh, it was donated to become part of the uh, 
National Wildlife Area. It's the only national wildlife refuge in the, in the United States that allows hunting because it was part of negotiation when they got the place that the owner of the ranch said, I want all of this, I want to have people be able to go hunting here. So at certain times of the year, you, you do have hunting here, the deer hunting, duck hunting, bird hunting. It borders the national forest, the, uh, the Mexican border. I was talking to the director last, last year. When I first came down, I started meeting all the people along the border. And uh, at that time, they were having a lot of people coming through this area before they brought down the National Guard and we started clamping down. Their estimates were a thousand immigrants a day came right through these fields. <laughs> a lot of people. But all these immigrants coming in every day doesn't mean they're coming in here and they're staying and they're causing, you know, stress on our country. They're coming in, they're going to the working at different times of year, and then they go home with their money in their pocket and they go back to their families. Putting the wall up makes it harder for them to get back and forth. Makes with the new uh, regulations on passports, it's going to be harder and harder for the elderly to get down back and forth to get medical attention. There's a lot of ranching that happens up here, and I've, from what I've read, that's a, a big issue for the ranchers because of the property damage and such that happens as a, as a result of... Well, <laughs> not really. Uh, the, you know, I've talked to some of the big ranchers. Uh, one of the guys has 50,000 acres right down here along the border around Aravaca. He says their biggest problem is the, the Mexican cows getting over here. When their cows go to Mexico, they round them up, you know, they all ride over the Mexican bordering ranches, round them up and drive them back. When the Mexican cows come over here, they all have really long horns, they're sharp and they're wild and crazy, and they're really hard to round up and get back because there's no grass over there. There's lots of grass here because they overgraze. So their biggest problem is getting the Mexican cows back to Mexico. But all the cowboys come over back and forth. I mean, these guys ride their horses back. They work for both ranches at roundups. They all get together at the roundups. They all do it the same way they have for generations. You'll see uh, photographs in my DVD of you know a nine-year-old girl roping a cow, pulling it back. Up comes the branding iron. They come up and they, they castrate, brand them, and off they go. They've done it the same way for generations, and everybody gets together. So I was invited to go out there and get right in the shoots with them, right down in there and photograph. One of the Hispanic ladies says, well, you're going to change the way all our men dress now for the roundups, because I gave them all pictures. <laughs> now that they know I'm coming, you ought to see the outfits. <laughs> but they're fun people. And you sit there at the end of the day, you know, after they've all worked together from all these different ranches on both sides of the border, and uh, have a beer with them, and have lunch with them. And it's great, great people. So what do you love most about um, just being out here and, and uh, using, your, you know, using your camera to express yourself? So, you know, you said you wanted to, you, were, you picked up the camera more as a sort of a creative outlet, but mm -hmm. uh, you're also becoming a, a bit of a sort of a storyteller result of, of working at the docu you know the documentary project so you're more than just trying to produce an individually nice picture but uh, what's been for you the most 
uh, I think creative, it, satisfying uh, aspect of it all. Telling the truth. Nobody comes down here and takes pictures of these people in their, in their natural environment, the way they are and who they are, and portrays them exactly the way they are. I mean, they just, you know, telling the truth. What's going on here? And it's changing. It's not like you could come down here next year and do the same project all over again. It's gone. And I'd like to document it for future generations so they can look at, gee, what happened on the American border during that era? You know, when they started closing it down and building it up. Well, what happened to those people that were along there? And who were they? And That's great. It'll just be my little contribution. Well, the way I end all these interviews is by asking uh, a photographer to recommend another photographer who they like and appreciate and who they think the listeners should uh, check out. So who would that be for you and why? Wow. I think it would have to be that lady sitting in the back seat. <laughs> I think that uh, Silka has been a real good influence on my work. Yeah, she's been sort of a mentor and really encouraged me to do this. So, that's all I gotta say. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Me Especially for this tour of the border. Yeah, you got it. Well, thanks again for joining us for the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Avarian X Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.